Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Life in a Backpack, a podcast about minimalism, working online, and traveling the world on a budget. Before we get started, I just want to make a quick note and mention that until the end of September, any donations that are made to this podcast are going to be redirected to the Red Cross. So this is the same donation link as always, which can be found in the description of each episode. And if you already have made a donation through that or you intend to make one, thank you so much for your generosity and support. In today's episode, we're going to look at one half of the buying versus renting debate. And this is a discussion that really has two almost entirely independent facets to it. One of them is kind of a sociocultural thing, and the other one is largely economic, so looking at the purchase of a house as an investment. Buying a house, I think, is something that in some places has just become ubiquitous at this point. And especially in North America, it also is very deeply culturally ingrained into related ideas like, for example, the American dream and also general conceptions of a typical successful life, right? So in Western culture, we sort of have this typical progression that people tend to take and that a lot of people take because it's something that they believe is expected of them and because it's considered a very safe path and the quote-unquote normal path that people take. And that starts with graduating from high school and then going off to college and finding a stable job and then getting married and having kids. And And a part of that typical life cycle is the purchase of a house. And a part of this conception also bleeds a little bit into the economics of purchasing a house, and that is seeing a house as the primary investment you're going to have in your life. And I think this is especially prevalent not so much in this new Gen Z generation, which is starting to question whether this is still a valid idea, but certainly in the Gen X and to a lesser extent also the millennial generation who have this idea that you purchase a house when you're young, you pay off the house over the course of, let's say, 20 to 30 years, and then you have that house to live in and obviously don't need to pay rent, which works to your advantage. But then the significant advantage to it is that the house is also seen as part of your retirement plan. So once your kids have moved out and you're living alone with your partner, the idea is that you're going to go sell your house and you're going to downsize into a smaller house, and then you're going to take that difference. So the value that your house has grown to versus the value of the new house that you're purchasing. And that difference is going to be able to fund a a comfortable retirement. And this is a phenomenon that's so interesting to me because I think it illustrates in part how cultural conceptions and an idea of what's considered normal can interfere with what actually makes sense for an individual person's lifestyle or for even the average person. Because sometimes these antiquated sort of systems of life are things that when they first get going make a lot of sense, but over time the economic realities of it change. And because it becomes so normal and because it becomes so deeply ingrained in the culture, the idea or the conventional wisdom sort of gains this social inertia and people don't stop to pause and check to make sure that this idea still makes sense in the present. And to be clear, I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense for anybody to buy a house. I definitely think there are still people for whom it makes a lot of sense, both financially and personally. But I do think that given how big a decision it is for most people, for some people this will be the largest financial transaction they make in their life and something that will dictate a lot of the lifestyle that they lead. 
sometimes there isn't enough discussion surrounding what makes sense for people individually and what the economics of buying a house in 2023 are and what personal considerations there are. And as a result, there are a lot of people that go out and buy a house without really ever questioning whether it makes sense for them in their particular set of circumstances. Or because they've been taught to believe that buying a house is this insurmountably positive decision and that no alternative can possibly come close to reaping the same benefits as buying a house will for them. So today I just wanted to challenge that a little bit and offer some of my own perspective on this, both from a financial perspective and from a personal and or quality of life perspective. But before we get too deep into that, um, I just wanted to offer a basic disclaimer, which is that this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only, and that nothing you hear in this episode should be considered a replacement or substitute for professional financial advice. So just make sure that when you're listening to this podcast, you're taking everything with a grain of salt and with the understanding that a lot of it is just my own personal opinion and that you're not taking it as being equivalent to financial advice. So with that said, let's dive in here. So I first became interested in this topic a couple of years ago when I was in my late teens and I started giving my first degree of thought as to what I wanted my life to look like and in particular what major major financial decisions I wanted to make in my life. And of course, one of those things as somebody going into their 20s was whether I eventually wanted to purchase a house. Now, my own perspective on this up to that point was colored by my childhood experience, which I imagine is the case for many people, where I had watched my parents struggle under the weight of a mortgage. Now, we weren't the poorest of the poor, but certainly it did place a lot of stress on my parents and a lot of strain on their relationship as well. So looking at this as a 19 or 20-year-old, I had this idea that if I was going to get a mortgage, I was going to at least attempt to do it a little bit better and maybe to make a larger down payment and to wait to the point where I could very comfortably pay the mortgage that I was going to take on with my own salary, independent of that of any partner that I would have at that point in time. Because I wanted the security, as many people do, of knowing that even if shit hit the fan, I was still going to be able to pay that mortgage and that I wasn't stretching myself to my absolute financial limits and that regardless of what happened, I could still comfortably be able to pay my debts and not have it interfere with my quality of life too much. And I was also a part of that generation that had grown up as children in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis, which hit a lot of people, especially in the lower to middle classes, who lost their homes and for whom that had significant social effects as well. And looking back on this, I think this was a little bit of a cultural turning point, especially in the United States where home ownership rates are so high, where people for the first time started to see a mortgage as something more negative and more burdensome. And a lot of people who were a little bit older than me, maybe about 10 years, who at that point were in their 20s, started seriously taking a look at some of the alternatives that were out there and whether it was necessary to take on that kind of mortgage in the first place. 
And I think this had an impact on political and social movements, of course, as well. I think in part that the whole minimalism movement was a response to that crisis in a sense, because people were looking for some degree of independence and security from that type of an event. And around the same time, the tiny house movement also came around. And one of the key selling points of that was that even if you had a family, you were able to purchase a house without having to take on a mortgage and without having that dominate your financial life for decades to come. And then, of course, there were surrounding discussions such as the right to housing and how a government should respond to crises like these and how they should act to prevent crises like these. And then even followed by things like universal basic income. So certainly this was an economic event that had one of the biggest impacts on how people view their own economic situation and how people view the capitalist system more generally and the relationship between people and government and the private sector. And I very much grew up in the midst of that. So I'm 19 years old. I'm sitting there life planning. And one of the things that I did was I ran some hypotheticals and I looked at a compound interest calculator online. And I was looking at some numbers to see how much interest I would have to pay and how much income I would have to have in order to pay off a house in a certain period of time and how long I would have to work in order to be able to make a down payment of a certain percentage. And I was reading up on volatility in house prices and historical interest rates and things like that. And at one point, I was putting in different interest rates into the calculator. And I found out that at an interest rate of about 5.5%, you're going to be paying double for the house that you've purchased. That is half of the total amount that you pay back, assuming you're paying it off over the course of 30 years and your down payment is 10% is going just towards interest. So if you buy a house, let's say, for $600,000, then you're going to be paying in the end $1.2 million for that $600,000 house. And I was aware, of course, that there were caveats to that. For example, that inflation will increase the price of your house over time, and that real estate in general can outpace both inflation as well as that 5.5% interest percent interest rate that I was looking at. But regardless, I looked at that number and knew right away that a mortgage was never something that I was going to be personally or financially interested in. Because when you sign a long-term mortgage like that, you're not only committing to being in debt for the majority of your life, but you're also committing to building your entire lifestyle around that debt and committing to that as well for the majority of your life. Because when you have a mortgage a sizable portion of your disposable income is always going towards your housing costs. And that comes at the expense, of course, of all the other things that you could do with that money. For example, going on vacation, pursuing further education, or even smaller things like going out to eat and buying luxury consumer goods. And I think with a mortgage, there's also this implicit pressure not only to earn more in order to keep up with it, but also to earn consistently, right? So it becomes very difficult, for example, to take some time off or to take a pay cut in order to pursue a different career path because that, there's always that mortgage that's hanging over your head and that you have to pay every month. 
And of course, in the case of renting, you still do have to pay rent, right? So there are still costs associated with that. But if you're looking to change your lifestyle and change your situation, either because your level of income is going to change or because you just want to move somewhere else or because other personal circumstances have come into play, it's just a lot harder to make those changes when you have a mortgage and you're kind of to a greater degree tied to the house that you live in and that you have a mortgage on, right? Because every time you move, there are costs associated with that. Everything from the real estate agent to the U-Haul truck that's going to move your stuff to the banking costs associated with bringing over your mortgage, that all costs money. Whereas if you're renting to a greater degree, you have the freedom to just say, okay, well, my rental agreement expires. Or if you're lucky, you're not even tied to a rental agreement for a particular period of time. And if you want to make a career change or geographic change or any sort of other personal lifestyle shift, then you have the freedom to just up and leave. And to the extent that you're tied to your mortgage and tied to your house, you're also tied to a particular community. And for some people, that's a lifestyle that they appreciate and actually one of the things that motivate them to get a mortgage. But in my particular case, I wouldn't necessarily want to be tied to one place and to one community for the rest of my life. And I would want the freedom to be able to be living somewhere and then get up one day and say, okay, well, now I'm going to move to this different place, either because I got a job offer there or just because I want to have a new experience. And I don't want to be tied to that house and to that place for the rest of my life or otherwise have to incur significant costs in order to let go of it. And then there's also the psychological costs of having that debt. So personally, I would consider myself allergic to debt almost, in the sense that I find debt to be so psychologically burdensome, especially if it's quite aggressively collecting interest. And it's such a huge form of mental clutter to my mind that that's just not something that I would have for a longer period of time. And that's not to say that I would never take on debt. For example, if I was starting a business, I would probably take on debt because I would know that hopefully if everything worked out, then I would have a positive return on my investment and that debt would be gone relatively quickly. But to have that chronic debt and just this huge sum of money, sometimes in these six or even seven figures worth of debt for decades of my life is, I think, something that would be too big a mental burden for me to be willing to take on in and of itself. And you can also see this in people who do have debt. For example, people almost universally agree that large amounts of debt are associated with stress in their lives. And intuitively, of course, that's true. And people also cite financial stress as, for example, reasons why they break up with their partner or why they get divorced. And it's very easy to brush that aside and say, okay, well, of course it's going to be stressful. And of course I'm going to have financial stress in my life, but that's something that's going to be worth it. But in reality, that's not something that's predestined. It's a choice that people make that you don't necessarily have to make. And I also know that just for myself here, that trade-off is not worth it. And I value that psychological freedom and that lack of stress more than I do the additional lifestyle gains of living in a house and owning a house and of having a mortgage. 
And a very ca- common counter argument to this, I think, is the notion that you either pay rent or you pay a mortgage. And at least in the latter case, you're getting this asset out of it in the end. So if you're going to be paying the same amount anyway, why just give it to your landlord and help your landlord pay off their mortgage when you can pay off your own mortgage and then own your house at the end of it and no longer have to pay rent? And I think this is where the notion of home ownership being a lifestyle choice really hits home in the sense that home ownership costs are nearly limited to just having to pay the mortgage or even just having to pay the interest on that mortgage. And this is partially derived from the fact that houses just deteriorate over time. They're assets that need to be maintained. So if you're planning on owning a house, of course, you need to pay all of the moving costs associated with that. You have to make a down payment usually on a mortgage. You need to pay your real estate agent. You need to pay closing costs and all those sorts of things. But then when you own it, there are also additional expenses. So for example, in some cases when you rent, you don't need to pay utilities, which you most certainly will have to pay if you own. You also have to pay property tax, which in and of itself can cost thousands of dollars per year, depending on where you live and the value of your house. You have to pay homeowner's insurance, which oftentimes is a lot more expensive than tenant's insurance. And then you also need to pay to maintain your house, right? So for example, if your pipe bursts and you need to repair it, then you need to pay those maintenance costs. Or if your furnace craps out, then all of a sudden you have a bill of several thousands of dollars on the spot because you need a new furnace. Houses also have less regular things that need to be maintained. So for example, every 15 to 25 years, a house is going to need new shingling and new siding. If you have a septic, that eventually might need to be replaced. Or if you have a cistern, that might need to be replaced. That's especially the case if you live in a rural area and you have that because you don't have access to city plumbing. But regardless, these are all things that aren't just a dollar or two here and there. These are all $10,000, dollar investments that are eventually going to be necessary in order for you to maintain your house, and more importantly, for you to maintain the value of your house should you ever want to sell it. But then also, I think there's this interesting phenomenon wherein people inadvertently pay more for their houses than they intend to when they go the buying route. So for instance, some people will flat out go to the bank and just ask for the highest amount that they can possibly get for their mortgage and that they can possibly be qualified for. And then they'll approach their real estate agent and say, well, we've been approved for $700,000. So please go go find us a house for $700,000. Or for people who do have a budget, sometimes they start off fully intending to stay in that budget and they go around saying, oh, well, you know, we have this reasonable budget that's scaled to our income and we're going to look for something in that range. But then they see a house on the market for just a little bit more and then they go take a look at that house and then they convince themselves to stretch that budget and to stretch their financial capacity so that they can afford that house that they want. And all of a sudden, even though their budget was initially $500,000, now that they've seen this house, they're trying to stretch it to five fifty dollars or maybe even $600,000. And that's where people get themselves onto thin ice financially. 
And that's also where, to a large degree, that loss of freedom comes. Because if you're stretched to the brink financially, then you also don't have the freedom to lose a month's worth of income. And then you're constantly under the gun for the entire duration of that mortgage to maintain that level of income that you need in order to pay that extra fifty dollars to $100,000 mortgage. And then, of course, a larger house also typically is associated with more maintenance costs. And not only that, but when people own a house, they also have a greater tendency to invest more. So, for instance, you might buy really nice furniture because you see your house is a permanent thing that you're going to be in for a really long time. Or you might buy extra decoratives. You might buy flower pots for your backyard. You might invest significant amounts in landscaping your backyard and in planting flowers. Or maybe your house only came with single-pane windows, but you want double-pane windows, so you pay to get all of the windows replaced so that they're double-pane. And again, this is very much a lifestyle choice, right? There are some people who are homebodies who just really value their home and who spend the majority of their lives at home. And those people are willing to devote a significant fraction of their income to making their living space exactly the way they want it, because that brings them a lot of joy and it brings them a lot of quality of life. But again, here for me personally, I just don't necessarily see the value in that. And I do see some value, just not the amount of money that it takes in order to maintain that. Because at that point, you're trading every other aspect of your lifestyle in order to maintain your living space. And I'm just not the kind of person who's willing to spend tens of thousands of dollars every year and trade all the other aspects of my lifestyle. For example, my ability to travel, to take time off work, that psychological freedom, the ability to go into a grocery store and just buy any food that I want without worrying about how much it costs, the ability to give money to family and friends or to charity. All of those other quality of life things are just worth so much more to me than having nice furniture or having double-paned windows or having a really nice garden or even having a really big house with a two-car garage, right? I would rather live in a smaller living space and find a couch that someone's giving away for really cheap and furnish my place with that and keep my single-pane windows and have a really, really crappy garden and instead have more time and money to do things outside of my living space. And I would even extend that to say, for example, if I know that I'm going traveling for a few months, I'm okay with just not having an apartment and keeping stuff in a few boxes at a friend's house in exchange for like, let's say, 50 bucks a month rent on their floor space. Or if I'm going through a transitional period in my life and I'm moving to a different place, then I'm okay with renting a room somewhere for a couple of months in order to save myself a couple months of rent while I'm going through that transitional phase. And of course, there's a gradient here. A lot of people, even who rent, want a little bit more stability than that. But regardless, not being tied to a house that you own and not being tied to a mortgage gives you the freedom in to be able to decide that more on the fly and gives you the freedom to be more flexible with the way your life evolves over the course of several years. I will say as a caveat to all of this, though, that I am speaking as somebody who's still relatively young. And I think that over the course of a person's life, they generally 
transition from being young and craving a lot of spontaneity and excitement in their life to getting older and prioritizing relationships and more stability. So I do think there might come a point in my life where I might look at the money that I hopefully have saved up by then and think about buying a house, especially because it's very financially attractive to not have to pay rent every month and to only have to focus on paying things like maintenance costs and taxes. But with that said, I mean, never say never, but I don't see myself ever taking on a mortgage in order to do that. And again, there's another really common counter argument here, which is the investment side of purchasing a house. And that the idea again here is that if you purchase a house, then its value will appreciate over time. And by the time you've paid off your mortgage 30 years later, or by the time you reach retirement and are looking to downsize into a smaller house, you'll be able to sell that house for its new higher value. And that will not only exceed all of the interest you've paid on your mortgage, but there will be enough money left over after you purchase a new house in order to fund a large portion of your retirement. And that argument isn't without merit. Certainly there are a lot of people who have done this and who have done really well and whose houses have appreciated a lot in value. But I would say a couple of things to this. So firstly, it's not like you're not going to invest any money when you don't own a house, right? So instead of putting all that money towards things like mortgage payments and taxes and maintenance, after you pay rent, you have the option of being able to take that money and make other investments with it. And the reason why I prefer to invest my money in different things is Firstly, because all investments involve risk, and housing is no exception to that. Certainly, there are periods of time where the real estate market has done very well, but this is a very unique investment in the sense that your entire lifestyle is tied to the investment. And on top of that, you can't sell a part of your house like you would if you own stocks, right? So if you owned 100 shares of something, you could sell 10 shares and then leave the 90 for a better time. You either sell the entire house or you don't sell at all. And there are cases where your lifestyle will interfere with that investment and you might not be able to sell at the ideal time. So for example, if you're looking to move or if you experience some sort of unexpected drop in your income, or even if you're looking to retire, you might be forced into selling your house at a time where you're not getting a significant positive return on your investment and or you might even lose money. And this is where people get themselves into financial turmoil, particularly if they're forced to sell at a loss, because now you've sold your house, but the amount of money that you got for that house is not enough to pay off your mortgage in full. So all of a sudden, you no longer have any house, but you still have a mortgage, and you still have a mortgage that's collecting interest and that you need to pay off somehow. And the nice thing about having other investments is not only that you can take a chunk out of it when you need it so as to limit the amount of damage, but also it's not tied directly to your living space and you don't have all of your eggs in one basket i.e. you have very little diversity in your investments. Because functionally, when you're getting a mortgage, assuming you don't own any other stocks, you're putting 100% of your investments into real estate. And you're also doing that with borrowed money, which means that if, for example, the interest rate on your mortgage is 5%, then your investment has to grow by 5% on average every year just for you to break even. 
Whereas if you're investing cash, typically you're not investing borrowed money. And also you can diversify your investments to a greater extent and move your investment when you feel it's appropriate and when conditions change. And specifically also for the real estate market, in the past few years, real estate has been really attractive in a lot of places because interest rates have been really low. And whether you think interest rates are going to go down to those levels again really depends on your own assessment and isn't something that anybody can say for sure. But there certainly is a chance that interest rates aren't going to go down that low again for the foreseeable future. And as a result, real estate becomes a less attractive investment because you're having to pay a higher rate on that money that you're borrowing in order to make that investment in the first place, right? And then there's also variables that you really can't control and can't fully predict. So for instance, if you buy a house in a particular town or city and all of a sudden economic conditions there change and everybody moves out, then the value of your house is most likely going to go down. And this is also true for other things that you can't control, like, for example, if crime rates go up in your neighborhood, or if your neighborhood becomes too populated, then that might also affect the value of your property for things that are really entirely beyond your control and very difficult to predict. So for reasons like that, I just wouldn't want to have all of my money invested in one single asset. And more importantly, I wouldn't want to make that investment with borrowed money. If you push that risk level aside, though, from a purely financial perspective, it can definitely make more sense to own than to rent or vice versa. And this depends in part just on the market that you're in and where you live and what the maintenance costs and taxes are like there. But in particular, it depends on how long you intend to stay. Because all those upfront costs, like paying off your mortgage and like moving costs, get spread out over a longer period of time if you're staying for longer. And as a result, home ownership becomes the cheaper option over really, really long time horizons, especially when you get over the 30 and 40 year mark. So I just wanted to make that clear in case it sounded like I was arguing that it always more makes more financial sense to rent. Certainly there are cases where it doesn't and I acknowledge that. But again here for me personally, I think when you consider the degree to which you're tied down and a lot of the behavioral components that I've already talked about that make people tend to spend more money in the home ownership case than the theoretical math would lead you to believe, I personally still wouldn't consider getting a mortgage. And at this point in my life, even though I wouldn't rule it out in the future, I also wouldn't consider purchasing a house, even if I had the cash to purchase one. I would probably invest that in other things instead, and then come back and look at home ownership again at some point in the future. So I hope if you came into this just looking to purchase a house kind of by default, this gives you a bit of a fresh perspective. Again here, there are lots of arguments in favor of home ownership that I haven't covered in this episode. Perhaps I'll make an episode at one point covering all of those arguments and paralleling this one. I just wanted to cover this side of it today, not only because it's my personal perspective, but also because I think right now it's the minority view in North America in particular, and it's an option that a lot of people don't entertain. So if you've made it this far, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope it was a worthwhile use of your time, and hopefully we'll see you again in the next episode.